Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today, my guest is the author of Refuge and Resistance, Palestinians and the International Refugee System by Anne Irfan, published by Columbia University Press in 2023. In the decades after World War II, the United Nations established a global refugee regime that became central to the lives of displaced people around the world. This regime has exerted particular authority over Palestinian refugees, who are served by a specialized UN body, the Relief and Works Agency, also known as UNRWA. Formed shortly after the 1948 war, UNRWA continues to provide a quasi-state set of services, such as education and healthcare, to Palestinian refugees' communities in the Middle East today. This book is a groundbreaking international history of uh, Palestinian refugee politics. The author traces the history and politics of UNRWA's interactions with Palestinian communities, particularly in the refugee camps where it functioned as a surrogate state. Anne shows how Palestinian refugees invoked internationalist norms to demand their political rights while resisting the UN's categorization of the plight as an apolitical humanitarian issue. Refuge and resistance foregrounds how non-elite activism shaped the Palestinian campaign for international recognition, showing that engagement with world politics was driven as much by the refugee grassroots as by the upper echelons of the Palestine Liberation Organization. And so, in the end, the book demonstrates that refugee groups are important actors in global politics, not simply recipients. And in the end, the book recasts modern Palestinian history through the lens of refugee camps and communities. I just want to highlight also that recently, Jerusalem Quarterly published two special issues dedicated to UNRWA, number 93 and number 94, to which the author is also a contributor. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Anne, welcome. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Let's start with a simple question. Can you tell us something about yourself and also about the origins of the book? Yes, so I first visited Palestine in uh, 2007 and I spent time in the refugee camps, mostly around Bethlehem in the West Bank. And during my time there, I was really struck by the the role and the presence, the visibility of UNRWA, the UN agency that provides services to Palestinian refugees. And then a couple of years later, when I was working on my my master's degree and looking at Palestinian history, 
I thought back to my time in the camps and those observations, and I was struck then by the absence of UNRWA from much of the historiography on this subject, particularly in any kind of historical, political uh, context or framing. So in terms of the origins, I think that the the really early origins came from the, the, coincide, the coincidence of those two things, of my own experiences in Palestine and my observations on the state of historiography. And then it, it really developed and, w- and was informed by contemporary events that were happening while I was researching the book. So as I started looking further and further into this, uh, the PA was trying to seek recognition for statehood via the UN. And then most significantly in 2018, the Trump administration defunded UNRWA. This was this, this marked a point where suddenly everyone wanted to know about UNRWA and suddenly it became a talking point, having been kind of below the radar for most people for decades. So the book increasingly kind of became connected to contemporary events and contemporary discussions. Um, And at the same time, from a more academic perspective, refugee history was really taking off as a subfield. So I'd say the origins of the book are grounded in kind of a few things that bring together um, observations on the ground in Palestine, academic engagement, and also contemporary news. Now, the book is about Palestinian refugees in the international refugee system. Could you introduce the listeners to your main goals and key terminology, starting with what you just mentioned, UNRWA? So UNRWA itself, some listeners will know and some may not, is the commonly used acronym for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, to use its full title. And unsurprisingly, given how long that is, it is more often referred to by the acronym UNRWA. Uh, Palestinians will often call it UNRWA, uh, and in the Anglophone world, it's generally just called UNRWA. So this is the primary service provider for registered Palestinian refugees across the Levant, and specifically and exclusively actually in five geographical fields, so Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. Uh, and as such, my book is is really geographically focused on, on that those areas particularly, Um, UNRWA provides uh, services in those areas that would usually be the domain of the state, of the government, of of public authorities. So it has large-scale healthcare and education programs. It provides municipal services in the camps. Um, It has a role in relation to infrastructure. And then uh, significantly, I would argue, it also provides um, registration cards to Palestinian refugees, which sometimes act as kind of de facto ID. Um, so in terms of kind of terminology and an overview of UNRWA itself, those are really the key points. Um, you also asked about my main goals. I would say uh, there are probably two primary goals and then there's there's other ob- objectives in the book. So firstly, what I really wanted to do here was um, tell a history of Palestine and of Palestinians that centered the refugees in general and the camp refugees in particular as political historical actors and not merely aid recipients, which is often how they talked about in relation to UNRWA. And secondly, I wanted to really counter the exceptionalism that is often applied to both UNRWA and the Palestinian refugees. And we can possibly talk about that a bit more. But one thing I seek to do in this book, even though it is focused very much on UNRWA and the Palestinian refugees, is also draw out their connections to to the the broader international scene and, and to bigger currents, academically and politically. Just keep talking about uh, sources and methodology. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about 
your methodological approach and the sources used? This is a really interesting question, I think, when it comes to doing any kind of research into Palestinian history and particularly Palestinian refugee history, because the sources reflect the reality. So they are dispersed, they are decentralized, many of them are missing or absent or inaccessible. There is obviously no really comprehensive Palestinian National Central Archive, although there there are now really um, impressive initiatives underway in Ramallah connected to the Palestinian Museum around this. But nevertheless, it's it's not because of the nature of the occupation and the nature of the ongoing Nakba that we do not have a, a single center that you go to as a historian to look at Palestinian history. And so the sources used in this book uh, are really varying. I had to travel to different archives, different collections around the world. It's pr- my methodological pr- approach is primarily archival because the the nature of the book is historical and, and it's looking at history in relation to a particular bureaucracy. And I used uh, sources from several archives, as I said, but particularly I, I focused quite a lot on UNRWA's own archive, which is located in Amman in Jordan, and which covers materials from all five fields. But UNRWA's own archive itself is is very opaque and can be quite difficult to access. Um, so while I was able to visit the archive and to gain access to it, um, this the difficulties of doing so, I think, reinforce um, the general challenges of researching this subject. We should probably say that actually all of the uh, archival material of UNRWA is rather... Uh, difficult to find and uh, to catalogue together and probably it should deserve a podcast on its own just to discuss where the material is and what the material can tell us but as you said it's it's a very complex uh, question and I want to ask you something because the cover of the book at least to me it's amazing in many ways it's also sad as a, there is an amazing picture of a young Palestinian girl walking across uh, a refugee camp and uh, I know we didn't plan this question, but I was wondering if you ever found out anything about uh, who is this girl and maybe what happened to her. Unfortunately, not. I think that in itself tells us something. So this this photo is taken from the UNRWA archive. So it's uh, taken from UNRWA's own collection of images. And as you say, it's very powerful. It's very evocative. I chose it for a few reasons. One being not only the the expression, but also the fact that the the woman in the picture is is moving, is on the move herself as she goes as she goes through the camp, and you can see the camp in the background. But I think I actually think the kind of the anonymity of it is in itself telling that if we go through certainly if we go through archival photos of refugees, but I think even if we look at many contemporary issues of refugees, there is often an anonymity to them. They are from reduced uh, to essentially kind of a generic facsimile of how we understand refugees. And, and I think that's not limited to Palestinians. Um, particularly if you look at images that we find in the UNRWA archive, these are often images that were taken for fundraising purposes. And so refugees would often be portrayed in them in a particular way to convey need, to convey vulnerability, um, to convey sympathy for potential donors. I think this particular image on the cover is less in that category. I think there is uh, there are elements of of agency here, but that anonymity still still applies. 
many ways, this picture reminded me of the unfortunately famous picture of the Syrian refugee, the child that died on the coast of Turkey a few years back. And I found it very moving, reflecting just on the cover. Now, I want to talk about the historical context of your book, and I want to ask about uh, what happened between 1947 and 1949 in Palestine. We know this is the period of displacement and dispossession of more than 750,000 Palestinians. And this is one of the most controversial, contested, and consequential events in modern history. So how did Palestinians become refugees? Well, the short answer is that the Palestinians became refugees as a direct result of the creation of the State of Israel on 78% of Palestine by military means and by way of violence. The State of Israel was created as a self-consciously Jewish state, and for that to be possible, there could no, not be, there could no longer be, under the Israeli state project, a Palestinian indigenous majority in the land. And so more than three quarters of the Palestinian population became refugees, as you said, and they became refugees either by way of direct expulsion at the hands of Zionist militias, which we know beyond doubt, definitively proven now, took place intentionally, or they became refugees because they fled out of fear from hearing about massacres and expulsions that were happening elsewhere or they fled to get away from fighting. And they predominantly in nearly every case did so believing that it was going to be a temporary flight and believing that once the fighting had calmed down, once the um, once the militias had been defeated, they would be able to return to their homes. So it was, it was a flight that took place with this very uh, temporary intention in mind, and that had a knock-on effect in shaping what happened subsequently in terms of Palestinian exile. And I just want to mention here, perhaps reminding the listeners that there is a previous uh, episode that I recorded with uh, Nadim Bawalsa um, in relation to his book, Transnational Palestine, where he talks about, uh, let's say, as he called it, the uh, first Nakba, when in 1925, uh, due to the uh, uh, citizenship law, the British denied citizenship to Palestinians abroad. Now, obviously, the numbers are very different, but I think it's very interesting to connect the dots of this uh, sort of transition from the 1920s where already a number of Palestinians were denied uh, yeah. connection with their own land and then moving to obviously the period of 1947-1949. I really want to ask about uh, the early work of UNRWA and how it was established and how it came to operate uh, in Palestine. Sure. So UNRWA was not the first organization that worked with Palestinian refugees. Uh, the Nakba began really in 1947, as you say. UNRWA did not begin, uh, did not arrive on the scene until 1950. So in that interim period, there were other organizations working with Palestinian refugees, uh, including primarily the Red Cross and then also the Quakers in Gaza as well as obviously local organizations, religious organizations, and there was support provided by uh, the host state authorities in the Arab world. So when UNRWA did arrive on the scene, it was created by the UN General Assembly at the end of 1949. It began operations in the five fields in May 1950. And initially, it essentially took over the aid work and the relief work that was being done by these other organizations. And it provided a more comprehensive relief response 
transcended the state borders and that was that was operational across the region. Its early work focused, you know, unsurprisingly on relief, on crisis relief, on things like providing emergency rations, shelter, uh, emergency healthcare. But it also uh, was very concerned in the early period with jobs. So the full name of UNRWA is the Relief and Works Agency. And the works in the title referred to a jo- the job scheme that was actually seen as primary to UNRWA's role in this early period. It was set up on the basis of the UN's economic survey mission, uh, which had been sent to observe the refugee situation in 1949 and which had concluded that employment schemes or finding gainful employment uh, would be a critical way to resolving the Palestinian refugee crisis. So in that very early period, um, UNRWA was really focused on job creation in the host states, uh, but it very quickly ran into difficulties uh, in doing so, which we can maybe talk about a little bit more. Now, before we talk about the subsequent period, or also known as the NAXA, so the setback of 1967, which obviously it's also known as the Six-Day War. Can you tell us a little bit about the camps, how they worked, and also their internal politics? So the camps uh, emerged across the region in the immediate aftermath of the Nakba, and some of them emerged organically, but many of them uh, were managed by the host state authorities. So in some cases, Palestinian refugees would seek shelter in tents in one part of the host state, and then they would find they were moved to another area that was particularly common in Lebanon. Uh, in some cases, camps emerged in, uh, or, or camps were put into place in old army barracks or in other facilities. Again, that was quite common in Lebanon and to a lesser degree in Syria. And they essentially became home to the refugees who had nowhere else to go. So as we said, more than 750,000 Palestinians were displaced as a result of the Nakba. And it is always the case with this kind of mass displacement that you will see a variance in what happens to people depending on their means and their resources. So the the refugees who had the most were able to maybe find, maybe rent or even buy accommodation or the, the most privileged end of it maybe even had other properties they could go to or had foreign passports. And at the total other end of the spectrum, the people who really fled with very little or nothing had no other option but to end up in the camps. Now, the reason I flag that and the reason it's significant is because the camps were really home to those who ended up with the least to lose and the most to gain from political involvement. And that had a knock-on effect on the politics of the camps, which was which was the second part of your question. So in many ways, refugee camps are often set up really as a form of management by the authorities but they also can have almost the reverse effect that in this case, they the space of the camps and the spatial demarcation of the camps made them a space for facilitating uh, continuing Palestinian identity and nationalism across the generations in exile. So there's a really um, beautiful quote from Fawaz Turki, who is a Palestinian refugee, grew up in Lebanon, where he said, you know, growing up in the camps, we lived Palestine every day. We had not actually left Palestine in 1948. We'd taken it with us into the camps. And that's really how you see, I would I would argue, this kind of um, almost double-edged, uh, double-edged nature to the camps in terms of their politics, that on the one hand, they're spaces of control. And on the other hand, they're really spaces in which the refugees express their Palestinian identity. 
Now let's move to the uh, Six Day War, so 1967. This event created another, roughly speaking, 400,000 Palestinian refugees. And I was wondering if you can speak about the role nationalism in particular played in the political life of the camps. The impact of the 67 war on the camps politics is really significant because the 67 defeat for the Arab states uh, really is uh, a turning point in how many Palestinian refugees come to think about their plight and their cause. And for anyone who had previously had faith that the Arab regimes were going to reverse the Nakba, were going to bring about the right of return, uh, the 67 defeat put an end to that. And it essentially um, gave rise to a very uh, exclusively Palestinian form of nationalism, which was essentially based in the camps thereafter. So after 67, it was the camps as the most kind of exclusively Palestinian spaces, as kind of the Palestines in exile, that became real hubs of the nationalist movement. And the militants who were known generally as Fidayin, so Palestinian nationalist militants, uh, were often um, drawn kind of disproportionately from the camp. So actually, it was only a minority of Palestinian refugees who were living in the camps, but they had a disproportionately high presence in the nationalist movement for, for the reasons I've talked about. I'm curious about something that you don't really delve much in the book, but perhaps you can elaborate here. How did the surrounding Arab countries see and perceive the Palestinian refugees? Because I think this is another interesting international dimension together with UNRWA. Yeah, so I talk about this um, in part in in chapter three of the book, where I, I'm going to talk here specifically about the host states, so so Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, because they have what you could almost see a slightly a slightly paradoxical relationship with the Palestinian refugees. That on the one hand, certainly ostensibly and certainly publicly and in official terms, all three of these states say that they are totally committed to the quote unquote cause of Palestine, that they support the right of return that they are brothers in arms with the Palestinians. Um, but in reality, their, their actual relationship with, with their own Palestinian refugee populations tends to be uh, a little bit more complicated than that. Um, there's variance across these three states. Syria, uh, certainly until 2011, was r- widely regarded as being the most favorable Arab host state for Palestinians. So under 1956 law, Palestinian refugees were given equal rights to Syrian citizens, excluding passports and the right to vote. But uh, in Lebanon and Jordan, the situation uh, was not uh, quite the same. So in Jordan, Palestinians, uh, or at least some Palestinians, were offered citizenship, but there was um, ongoing suppression of Palestinian national identity for a long time because the Jordanian government favored a kind of unification approach between the two banks. So Palestinians were encouraged to identify primarily as Jordanian, not as Palestinian, and Palestinian nationalism was meant to be tied to the Jordanian state, and that caused all kinds of tensions and problems. And then in Lebanon, where things were probably the most complicated, there was a a really long-term suspicion of Palestinian refugees, which was tied to all kinds of factors, but not least the fact that Lebanon operates on this very delicate political sectarian balance. And Palestinian refugees are predominantly Sunni Muslims. So there was concern that if they were integrated, this was this would alter that balance. 
And then there was also um, a lot of concern for a long time about the fact that the PLO, uh, was the Palestine Liberation Organization, was based in Lebanon uh, from the 1960s and that this was increasingly causing um, rising tensions over the Lebanese border with, with Israel. So longer term... Uh, many Lebanese, although not all, came to blame the Palestinians for um, for the war, the, the war essentially, and then for the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And keep talking about Chapter 3, you talk about Urwa as an international regime. One thing I try to do in the book is really unpack what we mean when we describe something as international, which on the one hand might seem like a really obvious, uh, on a really obvious word and a really obvious concept, but I would argue it's it's a word that's often kind of thrown around in a slightly flat term without really engaging with it. And I would say in the case of UNRWA in the UN, we can really identify kind of two forms of internationalism. Um, so we have in the UN system, we have the UN Security Council, which dominates uh, UN policy on international affairs. But the UN Security Council is controlled predominantly by the five permanent members, and and they disproportionately come from the global north and and, fr- and from you know what we might call the Western powers. So there's that form of internationalism whereby we often talk about the international community and international decisions, but they may essentially be driven by you know often the US and its allies, or or often by the global north. And in that sense, the term international. Uh, is sometimes criticized as really being aligned with kind of neo-colonial dynamics in in terms of global affairs. And then there's a second kind of form of internationalism, which I argue is embodied in the UN General Assembly, which uh, is much more about sovereign equality and historically was grounded in ideas of kind of anti-colonial solidarity and camaraderie. Um, And that also uses the terminology of internationalism and talks about itself as international, but in a very different way. And UNRWA is interesting because it really sits the nexus between these two forms of internationalism at the UN. So UNRWA is mandated by Answerable to, created by the UN General Assembly, but it has predominantly received its funding from the same Western global north powers that dominate the Security Council. So if we're talking about the UNRWA regime as international, we can actually see both of these forms of internationalism, the kind of anti-colonial international solidarity form and the more neo-colonial global north dominated form really entwined in in UNRWA's operations. And, And both of them come out at different times in how UNRWA operates. I think that one of the most interesting relationship is between Urva and Israel. So again, by two different actors uh, that operate in the same territory, but essentially are two international organizations. Can you give us a short description of this, I would say, very complicated relation? Yeah, it is very complicated. I think it's a relationship that on the surface would seem to be purely hostile and adversarial. Uh, because UNRWA's work is essentially grounded in recognizing the Palestinians' refugee status, and the Palestinians' refugee status is essentially problematic for the Israeli state project. Um, And then, you know, more recently, Israel, Israeli politics and Israeli government has has shifted further and further to the extreme right, and you've had uh, Netanyahu and other leaders openly calling for UNRWA's abolition. So so again, on the surface, you would see this as, as entirely adversarial and hostile, but as you rightly say, in reality, it's it's much more of a complicated relationship. I think one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of that's important to flag 
is that UNRWA was never mandated to work exclusively with Palestinian refugees. It was mandated to work and is mandated to work with Palestine refugees. And this is not just a semantic distinction. It's significant because it meant UNRWA is mandated to work with refugees from Palestine, not refugees who are Palestinian. And the reason I mention this in the context of a question about Israel is because when it first began operations, UNRWA also provided services to Jewish refugees who had been displaced from and within Palestine because they met the definition of being Palestine refugees. So for the first three years of its operations, UNRWA provided services within Israel to both Palestinian and Jewish refugees. And it only uh, ceased doing so at the uh, direction of the Israeli government, which uh, argued that it was going to take over these services itself. So uh, UNRWA and Israel actually initially worked together in that form at the very, very beginning of UNRWA's work. And then they had little contact for a while because, as I said, uh, Israel requested that UNRWA discontinue its work until 1967, when, of course, Israel um, begins its military occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. And, and as such, it becomes the occupying power over a huge number of refugees and camps that are administered by UNRWA. And although, again, the Israeli government in that period tended to approach UNRWA with a lot of apprehension, a lot of suspicion, um, actually, there was very quickly a realization on the Israeli side that UNRWA's work ultimately served Israeli interests in some way because UNRWA was essentially providing services that would otherwise be the responsibility of Israel as the occupying power in those spaces. And actually, for a very long time, um, that acknowledgement was unsaid, but was widely known in Israeli government circles. So even though for a long time Israel would criticize UNRWA, um, it would never go as far as calling for its abolition because it was aware of this financial burden that would otherwise, at least in theory, at least legally fall on UNRWA. And there was also a concern among many in the Israeli government that the alternative to UNRWA would be worse, that that they, they saw UNRWA as maybe providing some um, stability, quote unquote, and they did not want these services to come instead from, say, a branch of the PLO. Now, that, as I mentioned, that has changed in recent years because Israel has shifted further and further to the extreme right. And Netanyahu then called openly for UNRWA's abolition. But interestingly, when he did so, there were other branches of the Israeli state, particularly security and intelligence, that were not happy about it for, for those reasons. So other branches of the state continue to, while criticizing UNRWA, still essentially see it as kind of the better the devil you know situation. You move then to talk about Palestinian perception of uh, UNRWA. And I want to start with a quote at the beginning of chapter four by Salah Salah. The Jews got Israel and we got UNRWA. So if we start with the, the quote from Salah Salah, uh, I included this quote at the beginning of chapter four because I think it's very revealing um, on a number of levels, actually. I mean, first of all, it kind of highlights the way in which UNRWA is this compensation prize in the eyes of many Palestinians, that um, Israel is, you know, a fully fledged state with primarily, you know, with not only state services, but most importantly, with its very powerful military army, and that the Palestinians were instead kind of stuck with this, <laughs> with this UN agency, this toothless UN agency in, in the eyes of many. Um, but I also think this quote is significant because 
it alludes to the very widespread belief among many Palestinians that the UN holds accountability and responsibility for the Nakba and for their plight as refugees and their dispossession. And they they trace this to the UN's role in the original partition plan for Palestine in 1947, which undermined Palestinians' right to national self-determination uh, and which, which arguably, at least um, in part, led to the Nakba or, or aided the Nakba. So this quote also... Um, also alludes to that feeling that UNRWA is kind of um, a symbol or a signifier of UN responsibility for the Palestinian refugees and that UNRWA therefore needs to remain in place and it needs to continue providing services until the Palestinian refugee crisis has been resolved. It's clear that uh, UNRWA played a role in the development of Palestinian political identity and you mentioned already a few things about it. So my question is, how did Palestinian grassroots try to remake UNRWA, and particularly UNRWA programs, as tools of their political struggle? So this is one of um, my main analytical focuses in the book, as you know. And I think rather than speaking about Palestinian refugees trying to remake UNRWA programs, I would I frame it as UNRWA programs being the product of continual negotiation and renegotiation between uh, UNRWA's management and the Palestinian refugee population. So there's this kind of push-pull over time. And in the book, I focus in particular on two areas of UNRWA's services and UNRWA's work um, that the Palestinian grassroots in the camp focus on in relation to their political struggle. So um, the first is, which I already mentioned earlier, is the, the UNRWA registration cards, which started out as ration cards that were, get, were issued to Palestinians in the early 1950s that they could produce to collect their rations from the agency. And then over the t- over time, they were sometimes still referred to as ration cards, but but they, they ceased being connected solely just to rations and, and they became relevant for wider purposes as well. And the reason I'm, I'm mentioning them is because even though their introduction was intended to be in a very kind of functional instrumental sense just for collecting rations, um, they took on, in the eyes of many Palestinians, a much wider meaning because they were seen as kind of evidence that Palestinians were internationally recognized as refugees. And they saw this in turn as international verification of their rights as refugees, including the right of return. So um, there's often been pushback against attempts by UNRWA to recall cards or to replace them with another system for that reason. And actually, um, many Palestinians historically were keen to hang on to their cards even when they lost eligibility for rations just because they wanted them as that evidence. And, and UNRWA in turn at one point actually talked about having some system where they would just give every give every refugee a card um, regardless of their eligibility so that they could then uh, continue with uh, altering services as needed without having all of this additional baggage attached to it whenever they talked about withdrawing people's cards because their eligibility has ceased. So, so that's the first service I talk about in relation to the Palestinian cause and struggle. Um, and then the second one, which I talk about at length in the book, is education. Um, so education has really been, uh, I would argue, a centerpiece of, of the Palestinian grassroots struggle in the camps, really from the beginning. Um, education was one of the primary concerns for Palestinian refugees immediately after the Nakba. Uh, it 
the first classes and schools for Palestinian refugees were set up by Palestinian refugees. They predated anything that the UN did. And when UNRWA arrived, as I mentioned, its initial preoccupation uh, was very much with jobs and with employment. And it was uh, at least partly in response to continual demands and pressure from Palestinian refugees that UNRWA shifted its focus and ended up being an agency that primarily uh, is concerned with education and with schooling. And the reason I mention that in relation to the political struggle is because in the eyes of many Palestinians, education was kind of a necessary tool for their struggle. They felt that maybe they'd partly uh, lost their land and lost their homes in 1948 because of insufficient educational advancement. Um, they felt that it was going to be necessary if they were going to reclaim their rights as a people. Um, and they also obviously on an individual level saw it as as a tool for their children to, to get a better life, maybe to get out of the camps or certainly to get out of poverty. That was the struggle early on. And then later on, the struggle between the Palestinian grass, grassroots and UNRWA in terms of education centered not on the provision of it, but on the content of it. In the 60s and 70s, there was an ongoing struggle um, for UNRWA schools to start teaching Palestinian history and Palestinian geography. Um, and in this, the grassroots had some limited success for, for a period, although it wasn't lasting. You just introduced the next question, in a sense, uh, talking about uh, education. So can you speak about education in general and the role of uh, UNRWA uh, that has been playing in the education of Palestinian refugees? Yeah. So, I mean, education has been UNRWA's single biggest program in terms of budget and personnel since about 1960. So it's really seen often as being fundamentally entwined with the agency's work. It's, you know, it's been referred to as primarily concerned with education, as I said. Um, but I would argue that we we kind of only get half the picture if we only if we just look at education as something that was provided by UNRWA, because it was Palestinian refugees themselves who played a really leading role historically in pushing for UNRWA to provide education, to expand its educational provision. And then also um, to have a system of education that would um, in some way align with Palestinians' national identity. So um, so even though UNRWA is a critical player in Palestinian refugee education, the Palestinian refugees themselves are also a critical player. For a very long time, um, UNRWA's education program was seen as exemplary and was seen as enviable and Palestinians would be described as the best educated refugees in the world. That was a little bit of a of a marketing success on UNRWA's part, um, but there was some truth to it that has uh, really drastically moved in the other direction, um, certainly in the 21st century, but even in the later decades of the 20th century, century because uh, UNRWA has just faced um, worsening and worsening uh, budgetary uh, constraints, leading to continual cuts. And in the 21st century, we really have a situation where it is drastically underfunded, and UNRWA schools are often operating on double shifts or even triple shifts with often, you know, in very high um, student-teacher ratios and uh, very low quality supplies and resources. In the last chapter, you look at the interaction between the PLO and UNRWA. So starting with a brief discussion of the PLO for the listeners that might not be familiar with this organization, can you give us a sense of uh, this and their relationship? Yes. So the PLO is the acronym for the Palestine Liberation Organization. 
which was created in 1964, initially at the behest of the Arab League. So its history is is actually a bit interesting. Its origins are quite interesting. It was really initially created as a way for Nasser, the Egyptian president at the time, to kind of try and uh, contain Palestinian nationalist movement. He was concerned it might provide a rival to his own power base, and he wanted to ensure it was under his control. And the PLO was created in, as a kind of umbrella organization that he could control and that can bring together the various nationalist groupings and, and fedayeen and militants. However, as I mentioned, the 1967 Arab defeat had the effect of leading many Palestinians to lose faith in the Arab regimes. And thereafter, the PLO essentially um, emancipated itself from Nasser's grip and became definitively Palestinian, Palestinian run. Uh, thereafter, it became led by probably the most famous Palestinian of the period, Yasser Arafat. Um, and it became uh, driven not by pan-Arab nationalist concerns, but by Palestinian-centric concerns. It um, pursued both a militant strategy uh, in seeking uh, in seeking the right of return and also a diplomatic strategy in seeking uh, international legitimacy for the Palestinian cause on the world stage. Uh, and these two things were pursued simultaneously, sometimes with tension between them, often reflecting disagreements within the PLO itself. In the long run, we could say that the diplomatic track won out. The PLO eventually uh, signed a peace agreement with Israel in the 1990s, leading to the creation of the Palestinian Authority in parts of the West Bank and Gaza. And certainly in recent decades, the PLO has largely been regarded as irrelevant to Palestinian politics. But for the period that forms the focus of my book, so the decades immediately after the Nakba, it was really a leading actor in all of these affairs. And like all of the other actors we've talked about, uh, the PLO had a very complicated and very multifaceted relationship with UNRWA. It is, you know, more than a decade younger than UNRWA. As I said, it was created in 1964. UNRWA came on the scene in 1950. But nevertheless, both were long-term major actors in the Palestinian refugee camps. You could argue that it, there was a time in the 1970s where they were both almost surrogate states for Palestinians in the camps. And at times that created some tensions and some rivalries, but again, in a very complicated sense. So the PLO obviously aspired to being the, the surrogate state or long-term the full-on state for the Palestinians. And, and in some cases, therefore, it did not welcome UNRWA's presence, but it was well aware that, it, that the PLO itself could not really rival UNRWA in terms of resources. And so along with criticizing UNRWA at times and sometimes even appearing to oppose it, like many of the other actors, the PLO never went as far as calling for UNRWA's abolition. And actually, the PLO leadership up to and including Arafat himself uh, would sometimes even go fundraising for UNRWA in secret, would go and speak to governments and states that would not directly speak to UNRWA, but that would speak to the PLO. And the PLO would um, secretly raise uh, much needed donations for UNRWA at, at times when the agency was in dire financial straits. So um, there were a, there were a lot of facets to this relationship. You know, it, it on the one hand was really critical, and on one hand envious, and on, on the other hand was was trying to ensure UNRWA had enough money to do its job. And the final thing to mention was that in in navigating its interactions with UNRWA. 
The PLO also had to keep in mind the Arab states because in the decades after the Nakba, Arab governments all had this policy that they would not donate or they would not donate to UNRWA and they would not fund UNRWA because they said the Palestinian refugee problem had been caused by the West and therefore it was the Western state's responsibility to fund UNRWA. And the PLO held to this line in public, but in secret it was going and raising funds for UNRWA. So, so there was a lot going on in this relationship. Definitely a lot. And it, it, it keeps going, uh, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at uh, Palestine at the UN. And we know that uh, Palestine at the UN is a very controversial topic. And normally anytime Palestine is discussed at the UN, it raises the temperature of the various debates. It seems to me that the UN is full of goodwill, at least uh, when it comes to talk about Palestine, but not necessarily a place where results can be reached. So I think the Palestinians have a case where we could say by many measures they've actually been incredibly successful at the UN, certainly if we compare them to other marginalized or stateless or colonized populations, right? So they gained observer status at the UN in 1974. That put them uh, on a footing in some ways with the Vatican. That wasn't true of any other equivalent uh, population at the time who were stateless. Arafat was addressed, was invited to address the General Assembly in New York in 1974. They have been subject to numerous um, resolutions, conventions. There have been all kinds of UN bodies and um, positions created to report on the Palestinian situation. And so if, you know, if our success measure is kind of visibility, um, they've been very successful at the UN. But as you say, none of that has really translated into success in terms of their actual goals when it comes to uh, political rights, national self-determination, statehood, the right of return. And in fact, when in 2012, when Mahmoud Abbas, what, you know, went to the UN and, and sought recognition as a state. While many people who supported the Palestinians supported this measure in kind of its symbolic value, no one really saw it as very significant on the ground. And 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 actually, you know, a lot of the concern was much more driven up with the war on Gaza, which was happening on the ground at the time. So I, there's increasingly also been this detachment between what's going on at the UN around Palestinian affairs and what's actually happening to Palestinians. On those grounds, I think we could certainly agree with with what you with your statement that you know it's it's not really a place where you get results but what i would what i would juxtapose with that is we could actually look at um israel as the absolute opposite because the zionist movement also made a lot of overtures to the un i, I mean it wasn't the un at the time but to the league of nations and to various international institutions and then after 1945 to the un Israel became a UN member state the year after it was established. And even though there have been, you know, so many pro-Palestinian resolutions passed by the General Assembly, the Security Council has really largely succeeded in protecting Israel from any serious measures like, you know, sanctions or, or uh, binding resolutions that condemn it. Um, so if you were going to take Israel as an example, you could actually say, like, even though many... Um, on the Israeli side would see the UN as being biased against it. I think you could really make the case that, that Israel had very successful results at the UN. Golda Meir, who was the uh, the former Israeli prime minister, actually said, described the Israeli state as she said it was the firstborn of the United Nations. Moving to the epilogue of your book, you quote Peter Gatrail saying, quote, 
States make refugees, but refugees also make states. Can you draw some conclusions and perhaps offer some predictions, uh, if you will, in relation to Urva and the Palestinian refugees? I think it can be instructive to think about Peter Gattrell's line here in relation to Palestinian history, actually, because the obvious thought we would have is that, okay, the Israeli state made Palestinian refugees and the Palestinian refugees have not made their own state of Palestine. But actually, if we if we look at this a little deeper, we might think alternatively about how Palestinian refugees have contributed to state building in other settings. So the Arapo states of Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria were all really, really early in the post-colonial phase when the Nakba happened. So these three states, you know, each of them had only really been an independent state for a couple of years when they absorbed really large numbers of Palestinian refugees. And in the case of Jordan, when, you know, the Nakba led to the majority of the Jordanian population being Palestinians. And in whatever way, Palestinian refugee populations variously contributed to state building projects in all three of those cases. So if you were to just look at refugees making the state of Palestine, no. But if you were going to take a broader look at how do refugees contribute to state building projects, you could find cases in all three of those cases. And then we could also think about maybe Paris state building, which I talked about a little bit earlier, but we could I could expand on it briefly here. Because in the late 1960s and the 1970s, there were all kinds of initiatives and experiments going on in the Palestinian refugee camps, particularly in Lebanon, whereby Palestinian nationalists were trying to kind of set up like uh, early structures of what could ultimately roll into being a Palestinian state. You know, they were setting up um, infrastructures. uh, They were trying to provide kind of social services. They were setting up areas for providing, you know, education or training. Um, They even had, you know, research centers and economic planning boards. Um, So if we look at Paris state building, we could also look at the role of refugees there. And then finally, because your question, you mentioned UNRWA as well as the Palestinian refugees. If you're talking about refugees making states, well, if we argue that UNRWA is a surrogate state, then you have a direct case there because the vast majority of UNRWA employees are themselves Palestinian refugees. I have one last question. Your book is fascinating and there's so many topics that could be discussed and unpacked. And I followed my own understanding of the book. But I was wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask, but you want to unpack for the listeners. This is a really good question and quite a difficult one to answer because obviously I've um, been so enmeshed with the book now that it's sometimes hard to kind of get my head out of it. But I think uh, one thing I mentioned at the outset of our conversation was that one of my aims in writing this book was to to counter Palestinian exceptionalism. So if you look at any kind of broader study of refugees, there will often be a kind of bracketed line whereby they say, this does not, we're not going to talk here about the Palestinians because they're an exceptional case. And to be honest, even that applies to a lesser extent, but it's still present even if you look at kind of Middle East studies where it's often Palestinians are often very much treated on their own terms. And what I wanted to do here was to also look at how Palestinian history has been connected and has actually shaped big occurrence regionally and internationally. So I start the book um, with a really, a really tragic true story of a Palestinian refugee 
who killed himself in 2016 in response to UNRWA cuts, which meant he couldn't get essential health care. And I deliberately chose to talk about this in the context of other suicides that were happening across the Arab world at that time from young men who were, were in some ways in really similar situations. And throughout the book, I, I tried to do that as well, to, to look at how, for example, Palestinian nationalism became connected and embedded in what was going on with the crumbling of the Lebanese state in the 1970s, or what was going on with Jordanian state building efforts um, in the post-war period. And what's more, UNRWA itself is often described as exceptional. And it's often said that, you know, UNRWA is unique because it's a UN agency that only serves one particular group of refugees. And in some ways, it's true that UNRWA is certainly distinctive. But what I also want to show in the book is that in many ways, UNRWA is actually quite a typical UN agency. It is driven by the same um, the same concerns and the same factors and the same dynamics that drive all kind of branches of the UN, whereby they're having to grapple with maybe um, tensions between, say, the global majority and the global North powers, or tensions between who funds it and who mandates it, or who funds it and who it provides services to. And the final thing I would add is that um, even though it, the kind of the clincher that's often cited is that UNRWA is unique because all other, you know, no other UN agency provides services to only one population. Actually. Historically, there have been others. There was a UNCRA, UNKRA in the 1950s, only provided services to Korean refugees. And UNHCR itself, which is now the, the predominant UN refugee agency, was created in 1951. And actually, until 1967, UNHCR services could be restricted to European refugees. So if we take a longer historical look, we could actually argue UNRWA was emblematic of a lot of UN approaches to refugees. And I would take that as one way of countering any kind of suggestion that Palestinian um, Palestinian refugees can't be discussed in tandem with, with wider conversations. Uh, finally, and I would close by saying, it is certainly not the case that UNRWA provides Palestinians with any kind of unfair privilege or advantage in the UN system. On the contrary, UNRWA has a much narrower mandate than UNHCR. It does not have a mandate for protection or for pursuing political solutions. So if anything, being served by UNRWA actually puts the Palestinians at a disadvantage, not an advantage on the world stage. This was An Irfan, author of Refuge and Resistance, Palestinians and the International Refugee System, published by Columbia University Press in 2023. An, thank you so much. Thank you so much.